1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12, where we'll start what we're going to do in uh, this part of our worship this morning. get myself all situated here. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, I wanted to say before I get started uh, that I, before I forget this, um, we're sitting in their pew because Zach and Bailey are gone. Uh, they are in Conway today. Zach is preaching for the uh, East Side Church over there, so that's where they are, uh, and uh, so uh, he's busy with that, so remember them. Um, as they're away doing that today. I appreciate all of you being here. It's good to see you. I know this is the, uh, the 9 o'clock hour. It seems to me since we've switched to this format, the 9 o'clock hour, I don't know, we, maybe we start a little slow. Maybe we're all a little tired. Maybe we're just not used to, uh, uh, you know, maybe this is the, normally our class time and we're used to a little more interactive. I'm not sure, but, but uh, I'm going to do the best I can to uh, keep you awake uh, for the next 30 minutes or so, but uh, there's something interesting and something that I believe will be helpful that we're going to talk about here, beginning in 1 Samuel 12. Let's just read uh, these first five verses to begin with. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 1, it says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and made you a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness." Samuel does an amazing thing here. He calls all Israel to him. And he is at the end of his life. You see, he says, I'm old and gray. Now, instead of me walking before you, it's my sons. And he has served the people as a judge for pretty much his entire life, from his youth, he says. From a very young age, he was involved with Eli. And he has been a judge, someone esteemed. So just imagine how many cases Samuel has heard at this stage in his life as a judge. How many people knew him on a first name basis? Of course, everybody knows he's Samuel, but he knew them. He knew their situations. He knew about their families. He had decided for or against them. So many people. And so he's got something to say to the people in this chapter. But before he launches into that, what we just read is how he begins. And he asks what I think is a daring question to ask of all the people who have known you for your whole working life. And said, in all the years, do you ever have a problem with me? That's verse 3. Do you notice it? In verse 3, he says it several different ways. Testify against me. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe? He says, does anybody here have any problems? Can you imagine 50 years of work and you say to all the people you've worked with as a judge... You know, somebody wins and somebody loses, right? Anybody got any problems? And then to say that all the people just said, nope, you did a good job. Nobody has anything to say to Samuel. 
But even more amazing than offering it is the fact that no one complains. Now, what we're seeing here, there is a word we use to describe it. It is the word integrity. Integrity is the word that means we're sticking to what we know is right. We're committed to it. And we are consistent and honest. We're following the rules. We are what we claim to be. That is integrity. And what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is remind you of the pattern that you see in Samuel's story that we also see in a couple other stories that I want to look at for a few minutes. And that is this pattern, that integrity builds influence. That when Samuel is ready to exercise influence over the people, what he refers to first is his integrity. He says, remember who I am and what I've done and how I've treated you. Now, listen to me. Influence is something that we all want. We want people to listen to us, to take what we say seriously, especially if we know we're trying to live right. And sometimes, have you ever had this situation where you see somebody about to make a bad decision? And what you want more than anything, really, what we really want is to say, let me make that decision for you because you don't know what you're doing. But short of that, we want to say, hey, why don't you listen to me? I know what I'm talking about. We want to influence them toward what's good. We want to help. And in those situations, integrity is the currency that people will listen more readily. I'm not saying they'll always do what we say, but they will listen more readily and allow us to influence them when they know we are consistent and we can appeal to the fact that they know we mean what we say and we live what we're saying. I suspect that most of us also want a wider sphere of influence. We want people more and more to appreciate the good things that we're trying to do and promote. And because of that, it's important that we learn integrity so that we'll have those opportunities and people will listen. So what I want to do is just talk about three Bible characters. Samuel is the first, and we'll look at a couple others. There are more. There are several more. But what this pattern, I think you'll see, is how they, in the course of life and daily living, build a reputation that then they can draw on when it's time to do something difficult. So, first of all, integrity builds influence to say hard things. That's what Samuel's going to do here. He has some hard things to say to the people, and before he launches into a speech, he reminds them. He is not bragging. He is not saying, hey, I sure did a good job. I'm the greatest. Now you need to listen to me. But he is saying, just remember, I mean what I'm saying, and I've tried to live it. So let's keep reading here in 1 Samuel 12 and see what Samuel has to say. Look in verse 7. He says, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And so he goes into this description of up to this point in Israel's history, what God has done in bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them into the land. And then in verse 12, look in verse 12, he says, When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. 
So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, for you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So there's a lot in Samuel's little speech. There's also a little demonstration of power that he asks God to send this rainstorm, and he does. But Samuel is basically rebuking them on the one hand for asking for a king and then challenging them not to think that their king is above the law either. And those are some hard things to say. It's hard to tell people you've done something seriously wrong. And he does that in in very plain terms. The Lord was your king and yet you kept asking for a king. You thought the king was the one that was going to save you. And that was a foolish thing to do. Now, he wants them to hear that so that their hearts will be changed and their disposition toward God will be changed so that they'll be ready to hear what he's going to say next and the challenge he's going to lay before them about what happens going forward. But the point is, he challenges them about something they've done that's wrong. So now what? You've done something wrong. You've had the wrong heart. So now what? And in those moments, and we've all been there in moments where we say, I've really made a big mistake. In those moments, who do we look to? Who do we go and ask what what happens next? We look to people that we know are trying to live right. How do we know people are trying to live right? We look for integrity. We look for people that do the right thing in a lot of situations consistently over a period of years. People who have built their lives around doing the right things. And we say, those are the people I need to go to. If I want to do right, I'm going to go talk to people that do right. So in that moment, who has the greatest influence? Well, it's someone like Samuel. And so Samuel's saying, okay, now you know you need to fear Jehovah. Let me tell you about what happens next. And so he goes into that, and he describes how if you keep doing right, verse 24, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart, consider what great things he has done for you, but if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away. So here's what I'm getting at with this story. Samuel has a relationship with this people that is characterized by consistency and honesty and integrity. Just imagine if Samuel tried to tell those people all of this and he was corrupt. If they knew, well, he's got a lot of backdoor deals, and if you knew Samuel and you you greased the right palms, then you'd get justice. But otherwise, Samuel doesn't care about God. Just think about how this speech would come off. Oh, who are you to tell us we're wrong? that our hearts are wrong. Who are you to tell us that we need to fear Jehovah God? Don't you? You see, it comes very differently across when we don't have the integrity to back up what we're saying. And what I'm getting at, really the whole thrust of this lesson, is that we have to earn the right to influence people. We don't just get to influence people because we hold a certain position. We don't just get to influence people because we've gotten older. We only influence people when people can trust us because they've seen us consistently living the way we should. So, you and I sometimes have to say hard things to people. 
We're going to have to confront people about their sin at times. We're going to need to tell them, you're making a bad decision. You shouldn't be doing this. You need to watch out for this. You don't need to marry that person. Those are hard things to say. And isn't it something that we want people to listen to us in? And so if that's the case, we need to show that the consistency that integrity provides gives us the right to say hard things. All right, let's look at another story. Let's go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6. If we want people to listen to us in the really important things, then we have to be consistent in the things that appear to be less important. That's what we're seeing. Samuel has shown his consistency in the less important things, and then people will listen to him in the more important things. And here in Daniel, you'll see the same pattern that plays out in a different direction. Daniel chapter 6, let's read beginning in verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So Daniel, like Samuel, had spent his entire adult life in government. In government. And he says, these are the people, well, well, the text actually says that the king is considering a promotion for Daniel to where he's going to be basically over the whole kingdom, the highest administrator in the kingdom. And so his rivals, his enemies, are trying to find a way that they can tear him down And something is said that is just staggering to me. It's a lot like Samuel having the guts to say, hey, anybody got a problem with me? Just anybody. That is, Daniel is, it's said of Daniel in verse 4, there is no ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. There are no skeletons in Daniel's closet. There are no loose threads to unravel. There are no old witnesses to interview. No headlines about, do you know what Daniel did 25 years ago? Daniel just is what he appears to be. He's done a great job. And so the only thing they can say about him is if you're going to trip Daniel up or find some complaint, it's going to have to be about something to do with his God. The only thing he does wrong is he's a little too religious. So we need to trip him up about that. And so, of course, that's the plan. They scheme and they get the king to sign a decree outlawing no no one can petition any god or man except the king for a month. And that's a problem for Daniel. Verse 10, Daniel 6 and verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea to his God. So this is the kind of man Daniel is. Decrees can be signed or not signed, but Daniel is going to pray to God. And so he prays just like he did before. 
I want you to notice, though, as the story unfolds, we're just going to read bits and pieces. I assume that we're mostly familiar with this story and the fallout of what happens after Daniel disobeys the decree. But I want you to notice the response of the king as you go through this. In verse 14, it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Now, it's kind of interesting and kind of a sad commentary on the Persian Empire that the king can't reverse his own decree and say, you know, I had a bad day when I made that and I shouldn't have, uh, but that's a different story for a different time. But the king wants to save Daniel. All right, look down at verse 16. The king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Do you think the king noticed anything about Daniel? Your God that you're always talking about, that you're always praying to, may he deliver you. Verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? You see, the king has his heart in his throat. He doesn't know, could this man's God, if anybody's God can save them, it's got to be Daniel's God because of the service Daniel gives his God. Now that is an awesome testimony to Daniel's integrity. Drop down to verse 26, where after Daniel is saved, of course, God sends his angel to shut the mouth of the lion. Verse 26 this is Darius's decree. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, I want you to notice his decree is the God of Daniel. He only knows about Jehovah God. He doesn't even know Jehovah God's name, according to that. He only knows about him through Daniel. But he knows a lot about him through Daniel. You see what he says about God. All of that he learns because one man did his job so well and served his God so well that he had an impact that probably he could have never foreseen. So what I want to say is from Daniel's story, integrity builds influence to reach key people, people that, that he would never have been able to reach had he not had the integrity he had. Daniel's integrity makes him elevated in the kingdom. More and more people notice him. God continues to bless him. And I understand, and this is a lot like the story of Joseph. You remember in Joseph's story, where, wherever Joseph goes, he does a great job, he's faithful, but, but the Lord is blessing him. Where, whatever happens to him, wherever he is, you know, he's in Potiphar's house, everything goes great in Potiphar's house, he does a good job, he gets thrown in prison, everything goes great in the prison, he's in charge of the prison. He gets put over Egypt. Everything goes great in Egypt. But you see that combination of the Lord is with him and the Lord's blessing him. But also, I mean, Joseph has to do his job well. I think you see the same thing here with Daniel. God is blessing him. God is using him. But the reason that people find no fault in him is not because Joseph does a sloppy job and God comes behind him and erases it all. It's because Joseph has, in, I'm sorry, Daniel in this story has integrity. He is doing his job well and the king notices him, and the king also begins to wonder about him and his spiritual habits as well. 
So what I'm getting at is that Daniel influences the king without ever seeking to influence him directly. You don't ever see him go before the king and say, you know what, king, I need to talk to you about Jehovah. You are serving the wrong gods. And let me tell you about the Old Testament. See, Daniel builds influence by doing his job well and by being faithful to his God. That's what I'm trying to say. And then when pivotal moments come, you see he's already won the king over. He's already won the king over over these other people who are trying to, to scheme against Daniel and really scheme against the king too. That's the same thing that happens with Paul, by the way. Paul gets into some interesting places because he preaches the gospel. He ends up arrested and he ends up before kings. But the one that I'm referring to right now is the idea that Paul, because of his arrest, was there with the guard from Caesar's household. And he talks about how they had learned that his chains were in Christ. And I think part of that is probably Paul. I don't know if Paul ever stopped preaching uh, day or night. But it had to be that part of it was they saw that Paul was the real deal. You know, it's one thing to preach and have that, you know, 30 minutes or an hour And then for the other 167 hours of the week, we don't know what the preacher is doing. It's another thing to say, that man lives what he's saying. That's integrity. And that is how we reach people that maybe we we would be surprised to know we reach. So it's here that we need to say something about that. All the evangelism tactics in the world, all the different tract systems and all the fancy studies, none of them can replace integrity. The idea that people are watching us to see if we really mean what we're saying and really live what we're saying. And it would be good for us to remember that people are watching us all the time, especially people, definitely people that we don't realize are watching us, to see does the life match up with the claims? Are they sincere in what they're saying? Do they live what they're saying? We will likely influence people in that way that we never know about. That they don't come and tell us, oh, you had a big influence on me. I remember when you said or did this. But if the stories of Joseph and Daniel and Samuel are any indication, God is using those to bless people that we would never expect. People like the king. Let's look at one more. I want to look at one more example. I just want to talk about how integrity builds influence to encourage people in pivotal moments. And I want to look at a couple examples from the life of Paul. Uh, The first one is in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to him. And he knows that this is going to be the last time that he sees them. And he has some things to say to them as a group. In verse, uh, Acts 20 and verse 18, it says, When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Notice that. Paul says, especially, I want you to notice verse 19. Remember how I live, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. 
He does not say, hey, just remember all my sermon outlines. Remember the letter that I wrote you. Now, that's all important. He says, remember how I lived, how I served the Lord, that I mean what I'm saying, that we're trying to do this together, that we're all sincere in what we're doing. In verse 33, drop down to verse 33, he says, I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says in 35, he says, I showed you by working hard in this way that we must help the weak because I'm in it with you. He says, I worked just as hard as everyone else. Remember my hard work because what I did, I did from a sincere heart. Now, why does Paul talk about all of this? Why does he say, hey, remember how I lived? Remember what I was like? It's because there are some really scary things coming the way of the Ephesian elders specifically. And he is trying to prepare them in this moment. This is not just a, hey, I won't see you guys again speech. It is a speech in which he says, tough times are coming. And savage wolves are going to come in among the flock. And from among your own selves, men are going to rise up and draw disciples after themselves. And he is saying, you need to remember that I serve the Lord through trials. You need to remember that I help the weak. You need to remember what you saw in me and take courage for what's about to come. Because things are going to get dicey and you need to be ready. And one of the things that helps us to be ready for really difficult situations is when we have other people that we respect and we have seen them go through the fire before us. And then they say, here's how you do it. Here's what to remember. See, that is encouraging in a deeper way. It is not just words then. It's words that we've seen lived out. That's what Paul is saying. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul says, remember what we were like among you. And he talks about several things. We, we never were flattering you. We weren't after your money. We didn't have some crazy teaching that we wanted to get you on board with. 
We were exactly what we appeared to be. And you know, because not only did we want to teach you the gospel, but we were ready to die for you. You had become dear to us. We were like a mother with her children and like a father with his children, which I love how he mixes the metaphors there. He says, we, we loved you with that nurturing care that a mother has, and we loved you with that stern rebuke that a father has. All of it. He says, remember. Remember how we were. Remember how hard we worked. He brings that up again. Doesn't it make you feel like probably Paul worked pretty hard wherever he went? Because he keeps saying, remember how we worked when we were with you. But why? Why is Paul bringing all this up? Is he saying, man, we sure were great. Don't forget how great we were. No, he has a point. Look at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the last measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. He talks to this, this way about the Thessalonians and about his work among them because they were in a difficult place. They were under persecution. The church had begun under persecution and they still had opponents there. And he says, just remember what you are doing is what we're all doing and we're all dealing with it. And you need to take courage because you know we mean what we're saying and we're ready to suffer and die with you. Now that helps to know that other people really mean what they say when they talk about the gospel and about suffering for Jesus. Pivotal moments. There are moments that are pivotal where we can act to encourage people. I, I think about, we've just had this happen recently, where we have young people that are moving away. Or we have people that are getting married. And those are, are pivotal moments where there's sort of crossroads in life. And we want to give advice or we want to give encouragement. But we also, you know, we think about our own lives and things that we wish people had told us. Or maybe we wish that we had listened when people told us. Or lessons that have been burned into us. Or warnings we want to give. And those are hard. Because in those moments we, we want so badly to help those we care about. It's important in those times that we have integrity to fall back on. It's as if, and this is the way I picture this, I don't know if this picture will help you, not just throw it away, but it's as if we build up an account over time where we show we're consistent and we're faithful and we're honest. And then when time comes of pivotal moments, we draw on that account. And we say, you need to listen to me, here's why. And like Samuel and like Daniel and like Paul, we say, this is what I've been, and now I'm going to say this. I'm going to act in this way. Now you will listen to me because of what I've done. It's integrity that matters in those pivotal moments. We want people to listen to us, and people are more likely to listen when they see our integrity. So I have one minute. Actually, I have negative one minute, but I'm going to keep going. Let's just ask the question, how do I build integrity? I just want to remind you of what you already know about integrity. Jesus says he who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. That we prove integrity and we build integrity daily. 
Did you notice that Samuel and Daniel built integrity by doing a great job at work? That work matters. And faithfulness and dependability and honesty at work built their reputations that they drew on. So when we go to work, that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. How am I building and showing that I am committed to God today at work? Integrity is about consistency in relationships, where I'm going to show you each day that I care about you and that I do the things that care would do for you, that I'm going to resolve conflicts with you and tell you what you need to hear and live what I say and believe. And I want to remind you that a lot of those choices will go unnoticed by other people. And it will appear that we don't get any great glory or praise for that, and that's okay. Because integrity is very often developed quietly over long periods of time. So make those investments. Make those choices. And when time comes, you'll be prepared to influence. Thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.